Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome back to another episode of Cutting the Distance Podcast. I'm Dirk Durham, and today my guest is a longtime sportsman and ad, sportsman advocate and outdoor writer, um, lifelong hunter. And if anyone wants to know anything about elk hunting, I feel this is the guy you want to get inside his brain and pick it a little bit. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I have George Betis here today. Welcome, George. Thank you, Dirk. It's great to be with you guys. I've been following George for several years on social media, and I've seen a lot of stuff he's written over the years. And um, I've always thought he was a pretty neat and fascinating guy. And I thought, you know, who better to get on the the podcast and kind of talk about the good old days of elk hunting in, in Idaho, and in particular, Idaho's Clearwater region. Um, it's kind of a magical place, and I think it's probably arguably one of the most beautiful places to hunt elk there is as far as picturesque quality and and at one time it was it was a really neat place to to go elk hunting just because of the whole experience but i thought i'd i'd bring george on and kind of talk about those good old days and what they looked like back then and maybe contrast to what it looks like today hunting there and um if uh, any of our listeners, if you guys don't know, I'm uh, not familiar with George, I'm going to take a minute and let George talk about himself. And it's it's sometimes hard to brag on himself. But if you were to look at his Facebook profile, it's pretty, pretty impressive. He served in a lot of different uh, important roles, advocating for sportsmen, and among other things, uh, through his lifetime of, uh, of being a hunter and a sportsman. So George, could you give us a little bit of your background? I can, I'll give you the executive summary if you want to know more. <laughs> yeah. Go, go to Google or Facebook. But, well, I grew up on a small farm in central Washington. We never had elk there. I remember seeing the very first elk uh, 
way back when I was in probably a sophomore in college in about 1950, 1962. Uh, it was a big bull lying up in the timber, but we just didn't have elk there. We had a lot of, a lot of mule deer. And so, uh, you know, elk was a really uh, kind of interesting thing, thing to see on the farm. Well, anyway, um, after high school, I went on uh, to Washington State University, graduated. I was, in, I was uh, in the last required class of uh, ROTC, the Return Reserve Officer Training Program. And, of course, after you finish school, you've got to, you have to go in the Army. So I served in the Army uh, in the late 60s in, in the Air Defense Artillery Program, or actually branch. And uh, after that, uh, eventually returned to Pullman, Washington, uh, where I started work on my doctorate degree in higher education. And I, I was there until I retired in, in 2002. I uh, served in a whole series of positions, director of housing and uh, dean of students, and ultimately the vice president of, of student affairs. But um, and anyway, uh, but my interest in, uh, in conservation goes clear back to my just growing up on the farm. Uh, I was always interested in birds and you know, and identifying birds and then animals. And I you know we had deer and elk, deer on the farm, and we could see elk down in other areas. And so I was always interested in wildlife. Uh, and then after I, I used to say I spent my whole life either in school or in the army. And uh, <laughs> true. I was true until after I got back from, uh, back to WSU to work on my doctorate. I started uh, really thinking about um, hunting and other things I could do. Uh, in 1984, the Elk Foundation had their very first uh, uh, convention in Spokane, and uh, I had an interesting. You know, I was hunting elk in Montana at the time, up around uh, Superior, and there was a bugle magazine, and I I saw it, and the, and the guy. I said, the guy says, "Where'd you get this?" He says, "That's the last one." Uh, I said, well, do you have any more? He said, no. He said, well, you can have that one for 20 bucks. <laughs> so I bought it. I bought it. Anyway, so uh, I got involved with the Elk Foundation uh, just as a member, then as a, you know, as a, a uh, life member and habitat partner, and ultimately was on the board, was elected to the board, served as a board chair uh, during some tumultuous times kind of in the, with the Elk Foundation, changing uh, CEOs and stuff. Anyway, but parallel to that, uh, I got a call one day from Emmett Burroughs in, uh, in California. And uh, he asked me, he says, hey, I hear you like to hunt mule deer. Would you, I'm putting, putting together a new found, uh, mule deer foundation. I said, really? He says, would you help us organize it and develop the, you know, the documents? He said, I've got six other guys coming to Reading. And so I went down there and I was one of the founders of the Mule Deer Foundation and then uh, ultimately served as president. But at the same time, uh, in, eight, in 89, I was invited to become a regular member of the Boone and Crockett Club. And uh, I couldn't do both. So I passed the gavel on with, the, with the Mule Deer Foundation uh, on. And, uh, and then, of course, at the university, I had a job to do, and I spent time working you know, with Boone and Crockett. I've been a Boone and Crockett member for 34 years, served in, I guess, all levels of responsibility, 
except president. And that's been a great ride. And I, that connected to me a lot of different opportunities for, you know, uh, conservation work. The Elk Foundation, uh, when I was on the board, you know, their, their, the lands program, I was really involved with that. I was involved with all aspects of it. And I learned all about, you know, I was involved in a lot of those major, major Elk Foundation land programs uh, as, a, as a board member and as an individual. And, and then uh, after I, I left Boone and Crockett, actually, I left the university. I retired from the university in 2001 and, and went to... Uh, was hired as the as as, as a, the the executive director of the Boone and Crockett Club. Moved to Missoula. Uh, I've been here the last twenty years, and that gave me other opportunities to reach out and uh, and work with conservation organizations. Uh, Elk Foundation on their land projects was 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 one of them. Uh, after I retired from Boone and Crockett, I was hired by the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Foundation. And was there an executive director and manager of a of a trust they manage, and that that in that in that role we were able to fund millions of dollars of different uh, public access and the and free churches program. So anyway, I flunked retirement four times, <laughs> and uh, you know so that pretty much got it. And all along, when I was at the university, I basically had time to go. Uh, hunting deer and, for like a week and, and elk for a week. And so uh, that, that's when I discovered the Clearwater. And that's, I can tell that story. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's quite a quite an impressive list of, of roles of, of uh, that. That would consume a lot of time and um, um, responsibility, definitely, especially working full-time when you're at WSU and you were serving those other roles. Um, that's that's an incredible that's an incredible achievement really um that i don't think a lot of a lot of people can can do that i know i i don't think i would be able be capable of <laughs> having that much heaped on my plate on a, on a daily basis so that's that's cool a lot of the roles i had at wsu were you know involved students and student behavior in the residence halls and fraternities and sororities and you know i was on call 24 7 and so i could you know, typically an elk hunt in Idaho after I, we figured out, you know, the, where to go in the Clearwater, we'd, I'd have a staff meeting Monday morning and and I'd meet my buddy in, in uh, Lewiston with the horses and away we'd go and I'd come back Sunday and be right back at it. Two weeks later, <laughs> the, deer season, the deer season opened and I'd be a week for deer. That was it until maybe Thanksgiving and then, but uh, yeah, but you know, uh, I always tell young people to just follow their passion. You know, uh, I don't fish, but I hunt. Yeah. And I figured if you're going to do something well, you got to keep your eye on the football. And for me, it was hunting. It was deer hunting and elk hunting, of course, then brown bears in Alaska, yada, yada, and all those other things I've done. But uh, it was all about hunting learning your rifles and uh, studying the ballistics and learning to reload, you know, all of that. And so uh, anyway, that's kind of a, an executive summary. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So when did you get first get into hunting with horses in the back country? Well, uh, it had, the, the clear waters got me into the horses. Okay. I, uh, what year was that? I, 
I went in there the first backpacked in uh, for elk in 1976. Wow. But I started going up into the Selway bear hunting in the spring. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the guys up in those days, they drove up the, drove up the highway and so, you know, up, up to, uh, towards the Montana line. And you could, you could see bears any morning, any time, uh, right from the road. And, uh, there are a lot of adventures. I didn't like the river. I didn't want to have to go across the river to get a bear. So I, I heard about the Clearwater. I went up to Clear, Clearwater and up to Kelly Creek and killed a giant bear the first year. And that was in about 73, 74, maybe. But when I was up there in the spring, we'd see, and we'd backpack in near Bear Running, we'd see all these elk. I mean, hundreds of elk everywhere wow. we went, just big. Yeah, I mean, elk were everywhere. I mean, I can tell you, every place I went, there were just elk everywhere. And so I started looking at that, and I, uh, there was a guy by the name of Del Roby. He used to do outdoor films. And yeah, I've old, seen those. Old, yeah, and, and I remember going to one down in Lewiston at the Lewis Clark Sports Club. And they had one of these PVC bugles, and, and they called in a big six-point, and it was up in Max Walker's uh, guide area in Kelly Creek. And they'll come walking in, a guy shot And I said, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> I've never seen that before. Well, anyway, so I started focusing on the Clearwater. And so my, my buddy and I, we backpacked way back into the middle of Paradise Meadows uh, and uh, hunting, you know, bear hunting. And he had to, we had to hike over the snow and all that to get in there. But uh, Dirk, it was, it, it was one of the most memorable experiences I ever, ever had. Because we bushwhacked because of the snow, and we, we popped into this big basin, you know, three miles by two miles. Yeah. It was lush. It was green. And there must have been 300, at least, cow elk in the meadows with their calves calling back and forth. Wow. And we didn't know it at the time, but these, but these big bears were coming in to prey on the elk calves. So we both shot two big bears and uh, skinned them out and then had to use our map and compass to get back to the highway. Uh, <laughs> but when I saw those elk, I said, whoa, I've got to get in here. It's, it's like nine, 10 miles in there. Yeah. I'm going to do it. And so uh, I had to put together a group of guys and guys I knew and guys that were good elk hunters and guys that I trusted in. Uh, there was a phys- there was an orthopedic surgeon from up in Bellingham, Washington, and a friend of mine from Seattle that hunted elk together in Oregon. And they, they'd camp on the Washington Oregon line. Uh, Oregon would open, they'd shoot a spike there, then they'd come back on the Washington side in the Blue Mountains and shoot a spike. So I called Andy and Bob. I said, "Hey guys, I says you want to come to Idaho? Uh, we, we need some horses to get where I want to go." And they said, "Sure." And so. Uh, and then one of my former, well, my my secretary's husband was a vet student and uh, ended up ultimately in Pomeroy, Washington, and and so he had a horse, and and so I I bought a whole an old Appaloosa, rat tail Appaloosa from one of the, <laughs> one of the athletes, and uh, so anyway, uh, the, you know, actually the fall of '77, we went in with horses, 
and uh, tip, you know, I didn't know anything about much about it. Uh, you know, now I say we used to pack like sheep herders because we, <laughs> we had deckers and stuff and we tie stuff on and it'd fall off and then knots would come. <laughs> anyway, it was, you know, those four guys, we hunted that for 12 years. Wow. And during that time, we never hunted more than three days as rifle. Um, we'd pack in on Monday. At, well, we, we'd drive up the trailhead on Monday, pack in Tuesday, set up camp. And the season opened on Wednesday in those days. Okay. Uh, like last week of September, and the bulls were just really vocal. I mean, they were, at night, you could just hear bulls bugling all around you, everywhere. And, uh, you know, the first, the first three, oh, the first two days, we got we got four nice bulls, and, and uh, we had too much gear. We ended up boning them out because we didn't have enough horses to do everything, and we backpacked what we could, and we and we went out that way. And then we added some horses and added some horses. Uh, I got a couple of horses, and ended up that we had we had like twelve horses to go in there. You know, Holy with, cow. With, to pack out and four guys in your gear and that was before lightweight gear you know sure i've got pictures of me in there with my blue jeans and my <laughs> my my yellow plastic raincoats soaking wet you know <laughs> those but but dirk uh, you you know you were in that country you hunted that country but yeah it, you know and of course i went back and i I want to know the history. So I went back, I read all, everything I could find about the wildfires, you know, sure. and uh, how, how the red stem ceanothus was a really important winter food. And I mean, there were so many elk in there in those days that, and if you've been in there, hiked up over Cook Mountain back in that country, the elk trails were two feet wide and a foot deep. Wow. Those trails are still there. Yeah. I, I've been in there a couple of years ago and then a couple of years before that. The brush is 10, 12 feet tall. And I, I, knew where the, I knew where the trails were. And I'd be going in there with my horse and pretty soon he'd stumble and he'd fall down in the elk trail. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was unreal. We hunted it for 12 years. Wow. And... Uh, you know, we hunted hard. I'd go in there in the summer. It's funny because my, my, my hunting partner from Pomeroy, he was in the Nazarene church and he'd, he could always find a couple of young boys, maybe boys with just, you know, a single parent that would want to go with us. And so sure. we'd take them in there and, uh, you know, there were no, there's no timber in there. And we, we, uh, followed elk trails and we took out some, you know, we dug out some downfall and maybe cut a limb or two off of the brush so we could navigate in the morning okay. before day and get out away from camp because every year the circle got wider and finally we were killing elk clear over on Cook Mountain and coming back at two in the morning uh, but anyway uh like I say, we all hunted hard. Uh, it was like a military camp. On the, the, night, the night before, we get all the topo maps, and we talk about this, and we talk about where one guy was going and where everybody went. 
And then as soon as one guy got an, uh, got his elk, he'd come back. He, you know, he we'd get his he'd get his elk out, or or uh, one of us would go with him and get it out, and then he'd take care of the horses and cook. And uh, okay, yeah, it, it was that that was kind of the the, the drill. But uh, the habitat was lush. It's it, as you said, it's probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Yeah, and now. Now, you know, later in, in, later on, we can talk about what's changed. You guys were in there in September, and that was rifle hunting back then? Yeah. 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 Wow. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Hey, guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him, but I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.
Did they even have archery seasons uh, during that time? They did, and uh, we seldom ever saw a bow hunter. Okay. And what happened was, uh, after about eight years, you know, Max Walker was an old-time outfitter. He was a great guy. And then Gordon Stimmel was back in there, and I, I knew both. Knew, knew Gordon, never knew Max. They were gentlemen, and there weren't many people that ever go in there. There were a few yeah. people going in uh, with horses, but not many. And uh, the outfitter camp in there in Paradise Meadow was just, it was just all tromped down, and it was really, uh, it wasn't really very active, and we never saw an outfitter. But then a new guy came in and bought the outfit, and uh, he didn't like the fact that we were going in there and, and packing out elk. So anyway, we ended up moving over on, on the other side, on Cook Mountain, and uh, uh you know, we still hunted the same areas, but, uh, and, and then I always remember, right. We, we have to ride out through the lodge poles and in the dark and it's real, it was real flat up there. And yeah. you, if you didn't know your way, you, you get lost. And my horse knew his way to where we ride out and tie off. Sure. And then one day we we're riding out there and I, sh- I shine my flashlight on the tree and there's something shining. It's like a, it's like a thumbtack with with fluorescent paint on it. And I, what's that? You know. And then pretty soon I could see another one. Well, bow hunters had showed up and, and they were putting in those thumbtacks. Oh yeah. To get on the ridge. And then it was we we killed an elk almost every year after that with a with a broadhead in the shoulder almost okay. every year. Wow. That's when they showed up. It was probably. Uh, you know, uh, 82, 83, and, but okay. we never saw them. They would come in off the top on to, on to the south of where we were. Yeah, over towards, uh, out of the Wheatus there, across the Wheatus there yeah. and come up that side of Cook Mountain? Over the Wheatus Bridge. And then the outfitter, he, he really loaded up. He had 72 hunters in there one year. And he wow. had probably... He had probably 20, 25 bow hunters. I looked up this, you know, his information on the Forest Service records. and Yeah, he had like 20 or more bow hunters. And in those days, those elk were a lot of elk. And they didn't know much about bugles. But anyway, yeah. That's a great way to kind of frame up what kind of country that was and how many elk were living there. Um, my dad when he got out of uh, the Marines in World War II, then he moved to Weipe and made friends with some of the locals. And they started go up and going up into Kelly Creek there in the late 40s. And they would take go in there with horses. And the, what he described too, like the, the elk trails were just as you described, you know, two feet wide, uh, a foot deep, and there were elk everywhere. And yeah. they never shot bulls for the most part it was they were they were there for the cows they would shoot you know just the meat they were just they worried about meat and they're like oh don't shoot one of those old stinky bulls we want to we want a cow you know if somebody shot a bull then they had to they'd give them a raft of crap about it (laughs) but um at one at there was kind of a turning point um an outfitter started guiding up kelly creek there and and it sounds like a similar operation like tons and tons of people um in camps and all over the hillsides and he said it got to be kind of a rat race and he 
he he was there for the the quiet and the you know getting away and and not seeing a bunch of people and and then good hunting and um it just got to the point he just gave it up he's like well i'm not gonna go back up there anymore but um it's interesting interesting we did everything we could to to prevent any interference with the outfitter and we camped at the far end of of one 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 outfitter's uh, area, and uh, we basically hunted uh, on the on the edge of the other outfitter. And uh, frankly, frankly, we never saw the outfitters up there except when we're packing meat out. And uh, it was a, it was a really uh, we stayed out of their way. And yeah, well, to this day, if you get on Google Earth and <laughs> you go to that place that you mentioned. There's a there's a salt lick there that's about the size of my house, and yeah, that's still yeah. there. And I don't know that there's very many elk hitting that salt lick anymore. But it they beat it down so bad back in the '70s and '80s that uh, you know nothing will grow in that spot. Well, the outfitter used to. I'd never seen big, you know, big one foot diameter or, or, or two foot chunks of rock salt. And one day he was coming in with his mules and they're all loaded with rock salt mm-hmm. and there are big licks in there. But now one of the, one of the, well, the, uh, one of two of the biggest licks are so overgrown. They're, they're, uh, they're hardly there. And, uh, we, yeah. we put some mules up two years ago and left them there from the middle of August till bow season. And, on one camera, we had a raghorn bull, a cow, <laughs> a cow and a yearling, and they were the, and, and those you know they, the licks are still there. There's some deer come in, but you know you, you know you've seen those licks. They dig it right down in the ground, and oh yeah, they can't they can't salt anymore. But yep. but there were you know there were a lot of other. Uh, I met some good friends. Uh, my my friend would. Uh, the guy I hunted with, you asked about hunting partners, but the guy I hunted with, uh, he'd always run into these guys from Tillamook, Oregon, way back up in, in you know, in the head of the uh, head of Cook Creek. Yeah. And I'd never seen it. So it was the first Elk Foundation meeting in Spokane. I had a banquet and I sat down at this table and there's four guys sitting there. And uh, I introduced myself and, couldn't believe it. They were from Tillamook, Oregon. They were the guys that were coming in from the Locksaw. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you, know, you, you talk about how many of us were hunting. Um, you know, one is great. Uh, two is enough. Three will work. And if you know each other and you care about each other and and uh, this, and they're not jealous of each other. Four is a good team, but never more than four. And one of the things we people always want to know where we're hunting. Well, you know, and then they, some people get angry if you don't tell them where you're hunting. People followed my, you know, they're looking at my vehicles and my horse truck and this and that. But we never took new people into the area just because. Uh, you know, there's an outfitter in there. We don't want to bring other people. And if somebody showed up, they showed up. But that was a golden rule for us. We never took anybody outside to our camp. 
and uh, and so you know we hunted with four guys and uh, after I quit hunting the clear water and moved over into salmon I hunted with three guys, you know two other guys but uh, you can get a you can get too many people in camp right right and the the, the other the other little thing that comes into an, uh, a hunting camp is jealousy yep if you're good and you're in good shape and you hunt really hard and you're successful, you'll have somebody that doesn't take care of themselves and they don't take care of their body and they're not in good shape and uh, they won't push it the extra mile. And pretty soon that person gets jealous. So, you know, so that's, that's my old man's wisdom on hunting partner. Yeah. It's like, you got to have a good one. Absolutely. It's almost like um, when you're looking for um, a mate, you know, you're looking for a wife. <laughs> you have to vet that that hunting partner so good and make sure that you guys can get along. Because I've seen it, you know, the backcountry can bring out the best in people or it can bring out the worst in people. Um, you know, you can, um, because, you know, it's not all, every day is not just easy laying around and enjoying delicious food and sitting around camp. I mean, it, there's hardships, there's inclement weather, there's difficulties finding game, um, whatever, whatever the difficulty is, um, those, those partners have to kind of weather the storm with you and, and the ones that, that are really great, they're like worth their weight in gold. Um, and the ones that, that, that cause problems, those ones don't get to come back next time. (laughs) Well, I talk about the three day rule. A lot of people are ready to go home after three days. Oh yeah. And, uh, dealing with adversity. If you want to be an elk hunter and be successful, you have to be able to deal with adversity. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a horse that's injured or whether the, it, you get snow, you get snowed in. Uh, you know, uh, it's really cold. The elk move, whatever, and you gotta you gotta go the extra mile. And and when you find a, a, you know guys in your party that will do that, you've got a perfect team, and it's a team effort. And the other thing that I've always said is. If I can't be just as pleased with the success of my hunting partner as I would be for myself, I'm not a very good hunting partner because, you know, you share the experience and you share the camp. And that I've always, I've almost always had 90% of the time hunting partners that were that way. And it's a key to a really enjoyable hunt. You know, one of the questions you had was about mature bulls. Yeah. You know, when I first started hunting in there, there were the it was a September opener on a Wednesday, and there were bulls screaming everywhere, everywhere. Man. I mean, and uh, I had a, the first year we went in, I had a, a guy that worked at WSU that had some horses. He was a, a guy from North Dakota. He, he packed me in and dropped me off. He had four horses. He dropped okay. me off with my gear. And he left me. I put up my tent, and then he left that same day. That night's a night I'll never forget all my life because we had inadvertently set our camp 
right at the crossroads of about three major elk trails. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I didn't know elk bugle that night. Yeah. I am a, I'm a rookie. <laughs> I'm lying there in the tent, and it just gets dark, and I hear this this water splash, and I hear this bull just scream. He's like 10 feet from my tent. Oh, man. And, and all night long. And the elk would come down, they'd be splashed in the creek, they'd smell me, and they'd be bugling, I, I mean, all night long. I didn't sleep all night. And, but they're, uh, we, most all the bulls we shot, 90% were mature bulls, mostly all sixes. And, uh, you know, we didn't, we shot the first really legal bull we could get. Sure. We didn't turn down, we didn't turn down a five point, because, but there weren't very many five points. I mean, you know, there were so many mature bulls in there in those days. Uh, I've never seen anything like it since. Wow. And Did you ever see any that were just remarkably large, like giant? Like, wow, that today, you know, people's always looking, you know, throw, they always throw around big numbers, you know, 400 inches or 350 inches. Would you ever say you saw anything of that kind of caliber back in those days? There was one in there that would have probably gone 360 or more that uh, some guys from Oregon killed. The biggest bull I killed in there was just short of 340. My buddy, uh, Jerry, he killed one the same night, just just short of 340. But that, you know, those are the biggest bulls we saw. Uh, yeah. Most of them were 300 class six points. Okay. Or maybe, you know, and... But you know, I'm a I've been a Boone and Crockett scorer, so when I look at a bull and I say he's a three hundred, he probably is, but I keep yeah. I'm amused at, uh, at how Boone and Crockett scores are thrown around. Oh, it's funny. Oh. Um, depending on who you talk to, it's like if I'm talking to one person and they said, Yeah, I saw a three hundred inch bull, I usually sometimes I'll <laughs> I'll subtract about twenty or thirty inches. Uh, and I'm like, okay, so it, you know, because a lot of people, as soon as they see a nice six point, they're like, oh, there's a 300 bull. Well, a th- and a 300 bull is a really nice bull. That's a big, heavy horn bull, good beams, good points. That's a pretty nice bull. Um, they're, they don't they don't grow on every tree, that's for sure. No, no but back, you know, in, in days we were hunting in there, uh you can almost always find a nice six point the first or second day. Wow. Never hunted in three days and we packed meat the fourth day and when pack went home the next day because I had to be at work on Monday. Yeah. Uh, you know, you ask about the you ask about the the condition of the of the forage and the habitat. Yeah. It was, it was perfect. It was ideal. You know, if you go back and read about, you know, the the fires that burned in there and two successive different big fires. Uh, the conifers were really burned and there was, there were brush fields, but the brush fields were immature. Uh, you know, if you could, you could find a 10 foot uh, in, in, in this one great big open area where all these cows were, there were huge meadows and a lot of ferns and would grow in those meadows and stuff. And there was a lot of water, but uh, uh, no conifers at all. And then hmm. as you got wow. up, the conifers were, there were, there were a lot of immature conifers, uh, sure. you know, fur, mostly fur, uh, some hemlock in there. And uh, I remember uh, there was one, 
one really steep trail or ridge we had to pack meat on and uh, it was hard to you know to figure out where you were and so uh every once in a while we'd nip the top of a little like a three four foot christmas tree just cut the top off yeah about that and is it because you know you could see that and you'd look for that now those trees are are uh 50 20 feet tall and uh, you can see you know they've got triple tops or something but yeah <laughs> and there are hillsides we i mean we could shoot across i always hunted with a 340 weather bee and i, I knew the ballistics and, and uh we could shoot across from one side to the other now you you couldn't see an elk on that hillside across there and then uh well uh What's what's happened? Well, I've I've gone in there fairly religiously, uh, just to, to go in there. Sure. And uh, and and look and see. It's such a neat place. I took my kids in there, my daughters, and we'd go in and camp. And and uh, I was in there three years ago, and we probably rode I don't know seventy miles through there with the horses. Found one elk track. Wow. Well, and you used to be able to ride an ATV from uh, Cayuse Creek, you know, uh, clear across to the Locksaw. Yep. And the, the roads were just, there were elk trails coming down the cut bank, and, and they're just trails, foot deep, where elk are coming down the cut bank, crossing the road and going across. Yeah. Well, about seven years ago, I never saw an elk track on that road all the way to Cayuse Meadows from the Locksaw. It's yeah. and the elk just aren't there. So what's the you know what's the deal? What's the you know what's the deal with the wolves and what's the remedy? About the time I quit hunting there, the elk numbers were down, but there weren't any wolves there yet. And uh, the black bears, uh, I shot a lot of black bears in the Clearwater. A boatload because sure. we could shoot two. Oh. And we'd go in early, and uh, if I got a brown one, then I'd hunt for a black one. And we shot we shot black bears with, you know, uh, after just minutes after they killed an elk calf. But then Mike Schlegel did the study on the on the elk depredation or the bear, you know, the depredation by bears. Mm -hmm. back, and I'd see Mike up there in the cellway and stop and look at his data, and. Uh, you know they had mortality signals on their on their on their calves, but at one time the elk mortality in there was like 80 percent on wow. the calves, and the black bears kill a lot of calves. Right, and of course then you've got lions. Well, it's a habitat issue as well. I mean, mm -hmm. people want to blame the wolves. Yeah, the wolves are in there, uh, but. You can't just blame the wolf because it's a combination. Jim Peake is a wildlife biologist that I have always respected. And he'll talk to you about the batholithic soils and how the burn just really burned the soil. Right. And uh, the, the conifers and the brush is coming back. And, and that's not good elk, elk habitat. Uh, so anyway, and then, you know, we know about the wolves. I mean, when they're in there, there are a lot of photos on Facebook and stuff, you know, of the wolves killing, slaughtering elk down right on the river. But, but the combination is the, is the sticker.
But now, uh, you know, I, 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 Mike Schlegel is a really good friend of mine. He's a, he's a wildlife biologist that really has studied that. Right now, and I've known the fire manager over on the Clearwater. Mm-hmm. He laid out a whole series of burns in, mm-hmm. in the places that really needed to be burned. Sure. He laid those out. I saw where they where he, you know, I saw his maps. Guess what? People don't like smoke. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, now they haven't done any of those burns simply because of the you know the the image that uh, and the social pressure that people put on the forest service because of smoke and and uh, and he finally left but there's there are all kinds of burn units laid out all over that clearwater that yeah. haven't been burned and should be burned but probably never would so you know uh it's a tragic thing the other the other issue i i've encountered up there is the motorcycle access. Okay. You know, I'm not an anti-ATV motorcycle person. Not at all. Sure. I had ATVs. I've never had a motorcycle. Um, but the, the last time I was in, in there, uh, we camped, grew up in the head of Cook Creek and uh, came in from the Locksaw. And uh, the next morning, I wanted to go ride clear back across over and drop into Paradise Meadows and go down where our old camp was. And we were going across Windy Ridge early in the morning. And I, my horses are really gentle. They don't, you know, they motorcycles and stuff don't bother me. And the, 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 the one horse I had was trailing. He kept jumping around every once in a while. And all of a sudden, I figured out there's a motorcycle right behind. And the oh. trail had, the, the trail had been had been excavated with those mini excavators. It was two feet wide. The brush was cleared three feet to each side of it. And uh, there must have been a dozen guys from Missoula. Well, not that Missoula's a bad place, but there were a dozen guys. You know, they were wearing all their their uh, plastic uh, protection, and they had chainsaws. They were riding from Windy Saddle on the Locksaw over the, all the way over into Cook Mountain, down onto the the road, all the way down to the, the Wheatus and up the Wheatus and back up through uh, this cabin and all the way back in one day. Wow. And the Forest Service, I mean, it was a motocross. That was a great motocross trail. And, and so the worst part was we left a, a, an eight pack of cold smoke in the creek. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if you know cold smoke. Uh, it's our favorite Montana beer. But anyway, when we walked about 50 yards up the creek from where we camped and we, we ditched it down in underneath in the, in the water and go back there bow hunting. And these, there's a trail crew in there. They're, they're cutting trail. I mean, they're cutting brush out of the trail and the yeah. dirty buggers drink our cold smoke. Oh, no. If you've got a bike and you like to ride the backcountry trails, it's uh, it's the epitome. I mean, it's the best there is. Yeah. And then uh, the next day, we were, we were out on Cook Mountain, some guys from Palatch, Idaho. Uh, I could hear them coming and my horse isn't, you know, he's not spooked. But this guy came ripping around the corner and laid his bike down right in the trail. So he didn't run into me. And the guy said to me, he says, 
wow, he says, you're the first guys I've ever seen up here on horses since, uh, since uh, pre-Wolf. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know, the Clearwater is, uh, is an absolutely special place. And, you know, uh, I've got a few friends that are still getting some really nice bulls out of there. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I know kind of where they are. And, and uh, you know, they don't say much. They just go in there and, and hunt. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. It's a, it's a daunting place if you've never been there or never hunted country like that. Um, I know... Yeah, there's some some people who live there close by, or or have spent a lot of years up in that country hunting. That that they'll find success. Um, yeah. A lot of yeah. a lot of folks who hunt from out of state will come up and never been there, um, and they will they might spend ten days without even seeing an elk. Um, oh, yeah. Just just because it's, it seems like it's kind of the population elk is a little bit pockety. Like you may go yeah. miles and miles without seeing anything, and then one little pocket. The, they either the the elk feel really safe, or um, maybe the wolves don't bother them there, or people don't bother them there. Whatever reason, they'll have a little spot they like to be, and um, the, the you'll find some elk, and it's like winning the lottery, no. finding one of those spots. <laughs> yeah, and as far as wolves, um. There used to be a lot of wolves in there. You could hear wolves howling every day, bow hunting. And now yeah. you don't hear them very often, seldom, I think yeah. back in where we're 
Yeah, I think they follow the food, you know, and as as the elk numbers decline, then they they keep moving to try to find find food. They probably move closer to town, um, for sure. I'll so, chase one. Well, I'll chase ahead. one side rabbit, and then we'll talk about my book if you'd like. But yeah. uh, I used to run into some guys from Pennsylvania, clear out uh, on the backside over there and they had a gun that looked like it was it was a 6.5 uh weatherby or yeah 6.5 weatherby wwh now it's uh, you know it, it, in the old days it was a weatherby right hoyer long range rifle and it and, and they had a bench rest set up in front of their tent and uh they had a basically wall tent and a bench rest spotting soap and they were shooting elk you know eight or nine hundred yards across the canyon yeah and and I asked him how many they lost, and he said the problem is we get over there and the brush is thick. We can't find some of them. Anyway, oh, I I mentioned it, and I was talking to Mike Schlegel about it. Now there is a limit on the weight of the gun you can use or the rifle you can use. But uh, so with my book, I'll, I'll just be fairly short. It's called The Hunting Horseman. Uh, it's available at at Western Hunter. Uh, um, on the website, on the Western Hunter website, you can just Google it and find it. Yeah. Uh, What's the title of your book? It's called The Hunting Horseman. Okay. And uh, so after I, after uh, after I had left Moon and Cronk and stuff, Ryan Hatfield is a guy I'd hired from Council Idaho as assistant director of, of Big Game, and he left and he went to work for. Eastman's and such, and he ended up with uh, Western Hunter. And uh, they wanted to start a new Elk Hunter magazine. So he called me and asked me if I would be willing to write an article every month or whatever. I said, well, yeah, but he said, I want you to write about horses. I said, well, Ryan, I said, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about saddles and how to pack horses and Smoke Elser's got books out and you know, Joe Back wrote the original one and all that stuff. So really about horse packing, the techniques, that's uh, oh, that's pretty well covered. But uh, I so I said, you know, if you want me to write something, uh, I'll write about using stock in the backcountry for hunting, period. Yeah. And so I started writing some articles 12 years or 11 years ago. And, and uh so I, I wrote all, I was writing these articles and they were published and that, and, and in, kind of in, in the middle of that, I wrote an article that was entitled, Packed Like a Hunter. Okay. Okay. Well, if you're going to go into your hunting camp every year, there are only, there's certain things you take every year. There's certain things you can weigh up ahead of time. You don't need to be manning everything up and having all these fancy knots and there's a lot of ways to do it. Anyway, that was a really interesting article. But anyway, so I got I, I, my health changed dr- dramatically one year ago, February Valentine's Day, and and uh, we didn't know what how much time I had, and so Chris Chris Denning, the publisher of Western Hunter, called me. He said, "George, he says, what do you think about putting all your articles in a book?" I said, "Yeah, that'd be kind of cool," and uh, so we spent some time uh, last you know, February and March and, 
and uh, they compiled all of the articles I'd written for the Western. Actually, it started out Elk Hunter, then it it uh, went to Western Hunter. Uh, yeah. And uh, so they they put it all together, and uh, it turned out really nice, really well. It, it's uh, it's got it's just full color the whole thing. It uh, it has uh, some some tributes friends have written uh, that hunted with me. Um, but uh, you won't find another book like it. It's it's got in stuff in there, things in there about access and and uh, it's got things in there about you know conservation issues and stuff. But most of it's about hunting and uh, everything from how you put up a wall tent with poles to you know where you where you site your camp. But it it's uh, three hundred pages. It's good reading. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And. Uh, Anyway, it I'm, turned out really. I'm wondering, are those guys going to have uh, those available at the Western Hunter Expo or Western Hunting Expo in uh, Salt Lake City next week? Well, Chris just got back from uh, SCI, and I'll su- I'll suggest that he have he have some available. Yeah, it was limited production of like a thousand, but uh, I'm going to talk with him about it. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I'll have to go by their booth, and uh, I always like to try to track those guys, Chris and Nate, and those guys from Western Hunter down anyway, and give them razz them a little bit, and and I hope they got the book. I've been wanting to pick it up, so maybe I'll be able to pick one up there. If not, I'll just order it on the website. Yeah, it's a, it's a book you'll you'll keep or you'll pass on to your relatives or your children that like to hunt because it's a basic Boy Scout manual, but not really. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, so any last comments on the Clearwater country and, you know, you know, there's been some wildfires in the last decade there, but maybe they're not, they're not, haven't been strategic to where it would, would still help the elk population rebound. It, what, what needs to happen to get that elk population rebound in the clear the Clearwater region? What do you think it's going to look like in, in five, 10 years from now? Because I know there's a lot of that timber that's maturing. And if you spend any time up there, you'll see a lot of deadfall um, between from beetle kill or, um, and then there's some of the, the wildfire as well. But what do you, what do you think the, the future holds for the Clearwater? It really depends on the Forest Service. It really depends on the Forest Service because there are a lot of things they could do up there that are, you know, Good, good forest practices. But uh, in order to create ha- elk habitat, you have to have open areas. You have to have, you know, uh, feeding areas and bedding areas and tree canopies. But there has to be, you know, grass that they eat. And when it's all brush, and so you've got to burn that brush. The brush has to be burned. And they know how to do it. But uh, the, the, the social pressure uh, and the current uh, leadership in the Forest Service has not seen, they have not seen fit to do it. And, but they have a, a plan and it's all been mapped out. And you know, it, it's a habitat issue, number one. Fishing games dealing with the wolves. You know, they've gone in there with a trapper and, and uh, taken some out with, with, you know, the helicopter outfit. But it's a big time thing is the habitat. And somehow we've got to figure out, figure that out. But we know what to do. You know, the sad thing is we know what to do. 
Mike Schlegel and I have talked about this forever, and he's made charts about how important that elk resource was to the economy of Idaho and all that. And he's charted the, you know, the decline in the herds. And, but any biologist that knows that country will just tell you it's a habitat issue, and we've got to, we've got to burn some of that stuff. You know, you can't. You can't just fix one thing and expect everything to be, be to work. You got to multi things. You got to fix whether predation, habitat, access, all of it. Fix everything, and then you know those animals are going to flourish again. Yeah, it, it, you know uh, the two bear uh, limit, or you know the, the opportunity for hunters to take two bears and a reduced tag. That's really important for fishing game. It's very important because there are a lot of bears in the Clearwater. Yep. And, uh, you know, in the old days, uh, this guy, Ralph Flowers, used to, he used to be a bear hunter for Weyerhaeuser on the, east, on the west coast of Washington. And, you know, bears will strip bark off of a, of a young, you know, uh, two-foot diameter tree, and they strip the bark off to get to the cambium. And that's right. why, you know, Flowers was hired to kill bears in the warehouse or forest because they're stripping cambium or stripping the bark. You can go up there and you've never been talking about and the, 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 the trees are all stripped. I mean, they're stripped everywhere. And, yeah. you know, you can tell it. You can see it. And yep. if you want to go hunting, it's, it's a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, and then, I don't know, conservation organizations, you know, uh, I don't know what the Elk Foundation could do to, to fund some stuff in there, but, but they've got to work hand-in-hand hand with the Forest Service. If the Forest Service doesn't give the, the go-ahead, you know, it, can't, it won't happen. Do you think uh, so, we could get enough, rally enough sportsmen um, to put pressure on the fish or not the fishing game, but the uh, the Forest Service to maybe take a look at some of those kind of things. You know, I feel like it seems like the people that don't want you to burn, they have a they have a, a bigger voice than the people the other side. You know, um, I feel like just getting organized and getting enough people involved would would maybe help turn the tide a little bit. What do you think? Well, hunters just don't speak up, right? I mean, we just don't speak up. We don't write letters. Uh, we just don't speak up. And you can look at any of these issues, like with the wolves right now in Montana, you've got thousands of letters being sent uh, to Fish and Game to reduce the wolf harvest. Well, hunters will go to public meetings, we complain, but we're not very aggressive. And I guess, uh, you know, the, the young hunters that are coming on, if there's anything that, that they can take away from this podcast is get involved. Get involved with your local sports organization and get involved. And, uh, you know, the Oak Foundation is a great organization. Um, you know, get involved with that, but don't just go to a banquet, you know, talk to these people and you, you get a hold of their lands people and, and uh, like in the Clearwater, you know, you know, I was one of the guys that put together the Lewiston banquet years ago. It was the, the fifth banquet they ever had. And, 
or, or fifth place and we have a thousand people in Lewiston, but you get those people rallied up about the Clearwater, you know, and, and uh, you've got to, you've got to, it's about numbers. And you don't go there and holler at a public meeting. You, you go to the people who can make it happen. But, you know, this whole future of, of that, you know, uh, is in the hands of our young people, especially our, our young hunter conservationists. You know, it's one thing to go hunting all the time, but it's another thing to spend some time helping raise money for, you know, wildlife and conservation issues too. You can do both. I did. Yeah. You, know, you got to have a side hustle for, for conservation along with your job. There you go. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, people, don't, they think, oh, I don't have time to, you know, write letters or reach out or call, call your representatives or your legislators in your state or whatever, but... It doesn't take any time. Uh, I mean, you can pick up the phone and start calling and spend 30 minutes on one particular day, or you could tip, you know, you could type out a, a professional sounding email within, within an hour or maybe two. And, and there's so much, you know, if maybe you don't feel like you're, you're not a great um, letter writer um, today, there's, there's all this AI, you know, for all of us young people, um, there's all this AI technology that will, you know, that will like chat GPT that will help you write a, the best sounded letter. Um, anyone could write, um, yeah. and then, you know, s send those letters to these organizations and let them know what you're thinking. Because if the opposition is just crushing us with their letters, man, folks on our side of the table got to got to stand up and do some stuff too so um i appreciate you bringing that up well that's the future it yeah. really is our you know our, our young hunters are very enthusiastic about going farther into the back country and hunting elk way back off the grid and they've got the latest uh, you know lightweight gear and camel and sleeping in hammocks and sleeping in in hot tents and all that thing that makes me <laughs> makes me smile is I see them particular back 10 miles off the grid over an 8,000 foot summit and they don't have a clue how they're going to get their elk out of there that's a whole other story <laughs> that, yeah, whole that, other story. that's a huge undertaking <laughs> well, yeah but anyway uh, Dirk this has been been really a nice visit with you and yeah uh, call me and if you want to share my, you know, my Facebook stuff, people can get a hold of me. I have people call me all the time about, you know, hunting and different things and, and sure. uh, you know, rifles or whatever. And I always help. I'm always willing to help. Uh, so people can look you up on Facebook and mm -hmm. it's George Bettis. How, how do you say your last name? Bettis. B-E-T-T-A-S. Okay. Bettis is close enough. Okay. And do you have Instagram? I do. Yeah. I think it's just GB to Instagram. Okay. Right. Well, that's great, man. I've really enjoyed uh, uh, this conversation. And, and as you described that country back in the old days, my man, my head was just spinning thinking about, you know, those bulls bugling all night long and, you know, the meadows full of elk. And um, if you've seen the, that country, um, it just, it would, it makes, makes your, makes your head spin and to see what it is today. It's, it's a very stark contrast. Like you could probably give people a map and say, oh yeah, go hunt elk up there. Cause you're not really giving anything away at this point. There's just not, 
not uh, much for elk up there. But uh, it's, I still like to go back and visit those old spots and go over to where old Gordon Stimmel used to camp in different places and, you know, yeah. uh, where I used to camp and then go ride a loop down, you know, down towards the Wheatus and that. Uh, it's just, there's some, there, there's special places on this earth where you've been, me, usually hunting. And yep. uh, there's a special feeling you get there. There's the smell. You know, <laughs> we used to have grass two feet tall at our camp. Right. And after you, after, you know, you just turn the horses out with the hobbles, and it's, they're, they're in, in knee-deep grass. They hardly walk 100 yards from the tent. Now, almost any place you go is so dry on these ridge tops, and the cows have eaten out the riparian areas. You got to pack your own feed, and, and wow. that, that was it was so neat about that camp. It was and pressure hunting pressure. You know, there were a few guys that would hike in, but most guys would use the road system. And I mean, I never saw anybody else other than a few guys I knew that had horses in there in all those years, twelve years. Wow. Well, it's but, an amazing place for sure. Yeah. Well. I really appreciate you involving me and uh, I can do anything else for you or any of your listeners. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on here. It's, it's been a pleasure for sure. Thank you much. Thank you. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.